Hello and welcome to another edition of Turn Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham, and once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had the life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, kind of like my boss, the guy who runs the record label that my band is on, but also a punk rock legend for several different bands he's involved in or has been involved in, including the legend Super Chunk, Mac McCon is here on the show. This has taken years, years to happen, but it finally has. More on that in one second. But first, if you would like to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker, extraordinaire Tristan Abraham, and he will get the message to me. Thank you, Tristan, for all the hard work you do for the show. You can also find me on Twitter or Instagram at left for Damien. And if you want to support the show, the best way to support the show is just by telling all your friends about it, letting everyone know that, you know, that there's this podcast and they talk to, uh, they talk to him. They talk to them all. You bring them all. They'll talk to them. Uh, you can also support the show by heading over to patreon.com and checking out some of the fun stuff that happens over there. There's tons of footnotes, lost episodes, hidden episodes, a lot of videos of of various episodes, because a lot of the stuff now is done on video, and they go up over there on that podcast feed for the patrons and patrons, 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 whatever uh, they are. Uh, they are over there for them. And uh, yeah, so you can go over there and check that out. And speaking of support, this show would not be possible without the kind, loving support of the fine folks at Vans who came aboard a few years ago and said, Damien, do what you do, just don't do it out of your own pocket. And they helped me cover the costs of doing this thing, which is, uh, I, I can't thank them enough for doing. I am eternally grateful for their support for this podcast, and uh, it allows me to keep doing it. So thank you very much to them. I play in a band too. We're called Fucked Up. And as you may have heard, sadly, our tour with Faith No More has been postponed indefinitely. The band released a statement today saying that Mike Patton is going through some um, mental health issues. And as someone who has his fair share of mental health issues, he has my undying empathy and sympathy for everything he's going through right now. And... I wish them all the support and I hope he gets well soon or feels a little bit better soon and look forward to playing with them at some point down the line. Really, really, we were all looking forward to this tour, but obviously we get it. Uh, we will also still be playing though, Riot Fest. So if you're coming to Riot Fest, Fucked Up will be there. Let's have a fun, safe time. Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's a little ominous. Thunder rolls in. Um, but yes, we will be at Riot Fest in Chicago. Uh, we will also tentatively be touring uh, for the 10th anniversary of David Comes to Life starting in January, going all over the place. You can find out more details at fuckedup.cc. Uh, David Comes to Life is being reissued by Matador Records. You can find out more information uh, on our website at fuckedup.cc in our merch store or <laughs> probably over at Matador Records as well. You can also find out more information about Year of the Horse, our hour and a half long song which is being released by Tank Crimes, run by our good buddy Scotty Karate, over there on their website. And finally, our singles compilation, which never came out on vinyl, is finally getting issued on vinyl by the incredible record label, Get Better Records. And you can find out more information about that on their website. All right. 
on to today's show. Today on the show, the legend Mac McCon is here. Now, Mac is someone who, as I tell him on the show, one of the first people I asked about coming on this podcast, because to me, Super Chunk has always been kind of like this un, under-heralded, you know, not as far as being a band, I think they're they're very highly regarded as a band, but under-heralded as a punk band band. I've always felt they kind of get overlooked in terms of the best punk bands ever, particularly the best melodic punk bands ever, because I think Super Chunk rages, and I think they're also catchy as hell. So I've always wanted to have Mac on the show. Laura obviously was on the show. Uh, Laura, the other half of Merge Records, and you know, an incredible guest. Go back and listen to Laura's episode if you have not heard it. But Mac, and obviously John has been on the show a bunch. Jim still needs to come on the show. But Mac has been someone that I've wanted to have on the show for a very long time. And now it's finally here. I don't think there's any more reason for me to ramble on. I could go on forever just talking about Mac because there's a lot, you know, wax and slush puppies and portostatic. There's there's a lot to get to. But, uh, yeah, you know, we, we cover a lot of it in the episode. So I'm going to let you hear it in the episode. But before I let you go, what would turn out a punk be without a couple notes? Uh, first of all, I don't know what I was thinking. Fuck You is by The Stiffs. Here I am throwing out credit to, uh, I forget who even I credit to in the episode, but it's by The Stiffs originally. Not to be confused with all the other bands called The Stiffs, this is the original Vancouver Stiffs, which maybe the English Stiffs predate them. That's probably why they changed their name. Uh, also, the band that Matt can't think of later on featuring John Morand was Future Neighbors. And also, I just found out he recorded the Four Walls, Four Walls Falling LP. Which is a fun fact. Cool link in the world. Okay, that's it. I'm not going to ramble on anymore. Other than to tell you that on September 24th, Mac is putting out an incredible solo record, The Sound of Yourself. I love this thing. It's, it's f- fantastic. I haven't stopped listening to it since I got the link. As I say, it is coming out on the 24th of September on the, the home label, Merge Records. So pre-order that thing. And check it out, because I I promise you, you will enjoy it. All right, that is that. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Mac McCon on Turned Out a Punk. Mac, thank you so much for finally, finally coming on the show. We've been talking about this for a long time, Damien. Oh, you got to be one of the first people I asked about doing this thing. <laughs> oh, no. It's taking that long. It's <laughs> taking that long. I, I've, I've collaborated with you since uh, asking True. you to do on this thing. We've played together we live. We made a record together. We played live. Yeah. But it has not happened. But today, finally, yeah. we made it happen. This, I think, is is my brother's proudest moment because he has wanted this to happen. You know, I've wanted this to happen pretty badly and i think the only person that wanted it to happen more than me perhaps is my brother so awesome. uh but we got to start this off the way they all start off buddy which is how did you get into punk do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre i think that the first time uh i was really aware of punk was um just from like news like if i lived in fort lauderdale until i was 13 and so in the late 70s I feel like the Sex Pistols were like in the news mm-hmm. when they came over. I didn't know what they were or anything like that. You know what I mean? But like, I feel like that was like a a thing on the news, the Sex Pistols. But the first time I was really aware of like 
the music was, uh, well, two things. Like I was really into like um, classic rock. They didn't call it that then probably, but um, you know, like the who and, and my dad had like Rolling Stones records and Led Zeppelin records and things like that. I was really into that. And I was really into ACDC. Um, Which is kind of punk ACDC. Like Australia's taken up as punk. Yeah. I mean, and I didn't know that at the time, but I was like, that was like my favorite band in, in like 1979, 1980. I loved ACDC. And um so I would buy any magazine that had Angus Young on the cover. And one of those magazines was often Cream magazine. And Cream also had like punk bands in there, even though I didn't really know what they were. You know, there'd be like Pearl Harbor and the explosions or like, um, you know, like a, a thing about Paul, how like hot Paul Simonon is or whatever, <laughs> Yeah. you know? And I was kind of like, oh, like, well, I mean, I'm, I'm reading about this stuff, but I didn't know what it sounded like, you know? But but around that time, the um, the radio station that I have my alarm set to to wake up every morning in like eighth grade or whatever, uh, they 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 played police on my back like almost every morning like it was in rotation, hmm. and like I love that song and like that so that was really like the first like punk song that I that I like was aware of or by a punk band, at least, you know, I know um, Eddie Grant wrote it, but like that, that was like my first exposure. And I was like, Oh, the clash, like, I like this music. You know what I mean? Even though I didn't know about the genre of punk. Um, And I think it's so interesting, you know, like what radio could do back then because there wasn't, they weren't all owned by the same company. So like any station, I guess could play whatever they wanted to some extent. And, um, so, you know, they were playing that song, but obviously like the Pretenders had like hits on the radio, you, you know, like these mm-hmm. bands that later you go like, oh, like they were part of this other thing, but they were being played, you know, but they were having like these kind of like hits that you could hear on the radio, like Brass in Pocket or something like that, you know. Well, there's a moment where it kind of crosses over a little bit where you have like, yeah, like Devo and, and all these bands seemingly. Oh, for sure, Devo, when that really hits on like MTV and stuff like that, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or even like Cars by Gary Newman. I mean, the fact that that was like a smash hit is just like a, when you listen to his records at that time, like that's just such a crazy, cool thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 And I get, were there any regional kind of Florida bands that they would be playing around then? I'm like, I'm trying to think of like some of the new wavy power pop stuff that would have been. Well, um, Chilas, I guess, or cicadas. Or I wasn't old enough to like go to, go to shows. Um, having said that the first concert, like first rock concert I ever went to was a couple of regional Florida bands, a band called Molly Hatchet. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, well, and then the second uh, concert was um, I-, I went to see Loverboy. Canada. But they were opening for a band called Point Blank, who I think is from Florida. Oh. But that tour was booked before Loverboy's record came out and so they had uh they had a hit and but they were the opening band um and so we went to see Loverboy and walked around the, st- the side of the arena and got their autographs as they were loading their gear into a van which <laughs> I'm sure they weren't in that van very long because like their hit their, their song was like all over the radio um but Molly Hatchet was like the first uh the first like real rock concert I went to Sunrise Musical Theater. And I've talked to Todd Berry, who grew up down there 
he actually did see some great like new wave concerts at the Sunrise Musical Theater. Like he saw Blondie there, and Elvis Costello and stuff like that. But I wasn't really exposed to that. I mean, I'd heard Blondie because they had hits on the radio, but like I didn't, you know, I couldn't just go to a concert because I was 13. So it was like whatever my dad could take us to, you know. What did Point Blank sound like? I haven't really gone back to listen in a long time, but um, I think they were kind of, uh, I think they were kind of like, just like rock and roll, you know. Also, uh, The Chant, uh, incredibly underrated band with Todd Berry yeah. on that one LP. Todd Berry on drums. Do you think that LP, to me, that LP sounds like it's like a lost Flying Nun record. Like that record could have been at home on Flying Nun. I could see that. It's just weird sounding because of like the era and where they probably recorded it and stuff like that, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So where'd you kind of go from, you know, like going to these, where were you discovering like Molly Hatch and stuff? Was that from Cree Magazine too? Oh, definitely like Cream and like Hit Parade or whatever, the Hit Parader, Hit Parade, whatever that other magazine was. And Rolling Stone, of course, uh, I would like have a subscription to Rolling Stone, but really the radio. I mean, just listening to the radio all the time. And um, I started buying records around then. We had a giant record store uh, of the Peaches chain in mm -hmm. Lauderdale. There's huge, huge Peaches records. You go there. Um, and then we moved to, um, and then I got a Walkman around that time. A Walkman was like, I think a gift from um, friends of mine when when I was uh, moving. They like pulled together and got me a, like the first Walkman. So then I started buying tapes. So I was listening, listening to music all the time on my Walkman. But it was mostly again like metal and metal and classic rock and stuff. Like I was really an Iron Maiden. I really liked that band Riot. Mm -hmm. um, and then of course ACDC. Um, and then we moved to North Carolina and I, and my parents still talk about this. Like my main complaint about moving to North Carolina is that no bands were going to play here <laughs> because like, you know, in Fort Lauderdale, like everyone was playing in like Miami or Lauderdale or somewhere, you know, like the, the arenas down there, you know, everybody would come there and I, I couldn't really go see most of the concerts, but I knew that the concerts were happening and I was just like, oh, my God, we're moving to the country, you know, even though obviously <laughs> I didn't know what I was talking about. Um, uh, so we moved here in uh, 1980. And um, and I, I, I saw one of the first concerts I saw when we moved here was Van Halen on the Fair Warning Tour, which is, again, pretty punk record. Absolutely. And, 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 and through doing the show, I've learned that they were playing with like the dogs or they, they like the Ramones, obviously there's that famous flyer, but like, yeah, they, that's so crazy. Yeah. Like they were part of that kind of circuit of punk bands uh, yeah. out in LA before it got like, I guess, you know, before it all got codified a little bit. More. Right. Um, and, uh, and then when we moved here, so I was still into that stuff, obviously, but, um, you know, we live in a, we live in a area where there's like three colleges, four colleges, um, and all in a very small area. And so like college radio is a big thing here. And, you know, colleges get tons of bands. I mean, there's still like the arena, the closest arena at that time was in Greensboro, the Greensboro Coliseum. That's where a lot of the big concerts would happen. Like REO Speedwagon, Van Halen, Sticks, whatever, you know, mm -hmm. like everybody played there. But, um, but the colleges had concerts also. Um, and so that, that, you know then you could see like medium-sized bands would play and then of course there's a million clubs you know in, in the area which again i wasn't old enough to go to yet but it you know you could hear just so much more stuff on the radio when there's college radio stations and that's that's where i really started to um 
to find out about other other kinds of music. So what was some of the first stuff you were kind of picking up on from these college radio stations? I remember, um, I mean, if, you know, it's funny because it also like kind of coincides with like um, the arrival of MTV. Mm-hmm. So, and, and, and I remember, you know, MTV was, I mean, there's a great oral history of MTV. If you haven't read it, it's really awesome. And uh, they talk about in that book, like just how short they were on content. And they're trying to be a 24 hour station and they're just like, we'll just play anyone's video. Yeah. So, so like, yes, like what, you know, they they were playing like very mainstream things, but I remember they would always play the kraut video. Um, and uh, of course, Ramones and other things like, you know, there's just stuff mixed in Graham Parker and the rumor, like Elvis Costello, like all these things got mixed in there. You know what I mean? That were just like, certainly not getting played on the radio, but like, we just need videos. So like, yeah, we'll play this kraut kraut video um <laughs> it's funny because that video i think that's a rip that's on youtube is an mtv rip oh, or probably. at least for, for the longest time it had like you know the little mtv stinger yeah, in the corner yeah. but like yeah that's it's same when uh much music started up here too it's amazing right. how how punk and kind of i guess indie is always like the weather balloon for these new media things like i look at like the rise of social media the rise of streaming just how much concerts and, and shows were were paid for or sponsored by these streaming services that now are are, are focused on much bigger fish but right. at one point it was like oh yeah like or or scion or like red bull throwing money at punk shows yeah. you know like it feels like that it's kind of like the thin end of the wedge to kind of figure out all the kinks in the system before yeah. you go big and i guess it goes back to, to build your brand as something cool yeah people people like use actual cool stuff to build their brand until they move on to like a bigger, bigger <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? Till you don't need it. Yeah. But, um, but so like the, you know, I remember, um, there was a, there was like a local, um, or there's like a local music show on WXYC, which is the UNC station. XD might've had one as well, but XYC was easier to get at our house. Um, and, uh, so they would play, you know, they would play local bands, um, and the uh one of the bands that they that they play and they could also play like um they didn't have to have records or or whatever they had carts you know which is like mm-hmm. one song thing so like a band wouldn't even have to have official release out to, to get played on the radio so that was kind of cool you know you could hear these bands that are playing but they don't even have a record out but you can still hear what they sound like and they'd use that to promote their shows at cat's cradle or whatever so would they record these songs at the radio station or would you bring in a recording and they would cut the cart for you no you would bring in like um because like my band eventually in high school did that i think that we probably brought in like a cassette Mm -hmm. of a mix or whatever and then they put it on it's basically looks like an eight track tape Yeah. yeah yeah and uh so you know local bands that i remember hearing about the time were were obviously um you know, Let's Active were not in our area specifically, but they were considered local because of, you know, they're, they're from Winston-Salem. Um, and uh, the Pressure Boys were from Chapel Hill. They were like a ska band, I think, that started at Chapel Hill High, probably. Um, and uh, these bands would sometimes play all ages shows at um, a place called the Art Center in Carborough that's currently next to the Cat's Cradle over there. But it was in a different building at the time and they would have so like i remember going to see the pressure boys um 
play and all play all ages shows, you know, that every that like we could go to as high school kids. And um, Pressure Boys got really pretty big and would also, because they were big locally, would get the opening slot for anyone, any like larger, like new wave band coming to town. Mm-hmm. So like I saw the Pressure Boys open for Missing Persons. I saw the Pressure Boys open for Billy Idol. The Pressure Boys, I, I didn't go to it, but they opened for Duran Duran. You know, like they would yeah. just get put on these bills. They're like, oh, who's the local new wave band, you know? Um, but they were great. They're a great live band. Did they um, put out records? Sorry, I didn't cut you off. Did they, did they put yeah, out stuff? They, they put out, they self-released a couple EPs um, and then probably, and then compiled those onto a CD at some, at some point. Okay. But, um, but the, the singer for the band and trombone player for the band uh, was John Plymel, who we made multiple records with over mm-hmm. the years. He became an, an audio engineer. Um, and, uh, but anyway, so, so uh, the other band that was becoming <clears throat> really big around this time in the South was REM. And they played shows before I was old enough to go to shows. They played at these little clubs, uh, this place called the station in Carborough. Um, and probably played the cat's cradle too. I'm not sure, but, um, but, you know, once they started to make a name for themselves, I mean, everyone kind of claimed them. Like if you were in the South, like they were the coolest thing, you know what I mean? And they're from six hours away. So that's like close enough. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and other bands in their wake, like local bands that kind of sounded like REM, there's a band called one plus two from around here is kind of have jangly thing. Again, let's active was getting kind of, known around that around that same time they and mitch who was in let's active had you know worked with rem produced rem um before that he's in the sneakers too right yeah and i didn't know about the sneakers that was even before i moved to north carolina but right he already had a whole history uh in winston um the dbs i think it already moved to new york but uh, you know they're from around here and Mm -hmm. so you heard them on on the radio a lot on college radio a lot and um and uh, so there was like a lot going on again, like couldn't go to see bands and clubs. So that was kind of um, made things hard to see, but, you know, obviously one of the bands that I heard on college radio, though they wouldn't play it as often as these other bands was corrosion of conformity um, who were from Raleigh. And I remember hearing them on the new music show on WXYC. Um, and uh, the first time, the first time that I went to a hardcore show uh, was I saw a flyer um, up at our high school for a show at the Duke Coffee House. I can't remember. Have you guys ever played the Duke Coffee House by, by any chance? No, I was, you know what? It's so weird. It's like, and I know, uh, you know, <clears throat> Canadians always complain about Americans lack of knowledge of Canadian geography, but I find the cities in the, in the Carolinas so hard to keep straight in my mind, like where I've played and where I haven't played, but no, I'm pretty sure we've never played there. Well, you've played in Raleigh and you've yes. played and you've played in Carborough, which is basically next to Chapel Hill. Yeah. I don't, I don't know that you've ever played in Durham. I'm not sure. I don't think we've ever played Durham. And, and I know we, I know it's not close by, but we've, we played Charlotte a few times. Like it always seemed like we played Charlotte the most for the, in the early years, at least. Right. So, um, so there was a flyer for uh, a show at the Duke Coffee House for a band called the Ugly Americans. Yes. And 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 there's a band opening called the band with no name. 
And so um, some friends and the coffee house is all ages because it's on campus and there's no, they don't sell alcohol or whatever. So we went to this show and what I didn't know was that it was Ugly Americans first show. Oh, wow. Um, what I also didn't know was that in the band with no name was Chuck Garrison, our first drummer. Oh, wild. Okay. So like, I figured that out like much like probably after Chuck and we'd been playing music, probably after I'd known Chuck for like years already, he was like, Oh, that was my band. Like I was in that band. <laughs> um, but anyway, so we went to this show, um, ugly Americans played and everyone from corrosion of conformity was in the, um, room and so they just got up and and played a set on ugly americans gear just because just because whatever they were there and they could or whatever so (laughs) uh so that was my first like hardcore show that was amazing um and coc played a lot and they uh i never got to see no labels they had already i think they were around for like a year maybe two years maximum um they already broken up but um I saw COC not that long after uh, play an outdoor show at Duke um, on the Duke campus. Um, and they were awesome. Like they're just so exciting. And like the music was exciting. They're exciting to watch live. Like they were just incredible. And that's really kind of what, I mean, I was hooked on like punk rock at that point. What about stillborn Christians? Did you see them early on? I saw the um, stillborn Christians and um I think in Raleigh at a, probably at the brewery or somewhere over there um, at one of the all ages shows that a club in Raleigh called the brewery would have like, su- like hardcore matinees usually on Sundays, Saturdays or Sundays mm-hmm. um, during the day. Um, and so I saw stillborn Christians there. And then of course, later, you know, ended up in a band with Jeb from stillborn Christians um, and, uh, and putting, putting out, uh, his his records um in as when he was in angels of epistemology um and um uh one you know once i after high school i had a band with um my friend jonathan newman who played drums for the slush puppies and jonathan also played in egg and egg was basically stillborn christians but with jonathan playing drums because it was gary and jeb and then with a different uh drummer I was thinking about this when I was kind of like putting everything together. I want to talk to you about for this episode. I've I've spared you from it, but I got this scary looking list of questions that I was going to get to, but I'm just flying off the top of my head back. Don't worry. Uh, (laughs) But um, it's, it's amazing how I don't want incestuous is such a terrible thing to apply to this, but like how interwoven the scene is Mm -hmm. um, out there. Like how many of these bands kind of have a continuance? Like there feels like the, the scene that would ultimately, I guess be referred to, by myself at least from a distance as like the merge scene mm-hmm. it's like it's so much out of this hardcore scene like it's just like i don't know it's just like one scene just kind of like was it like people it just feels like such a, a unique thing because there's like i guess you see it in dc too mm-hmm. but like a lot of times there's like distinct sort of breaks in right. scenes you know where right. things fall apart people move away but it just feels like people just kind of grew together i think that um i think that one well, something I associate with that is the fact that when, you know, you're living in a place like North Carolina, there's less of a, um, maybe it's just not really possible, but also the, like there's less of an inclination to have like a super defined scene. Mm-hmm. In other words, 
In other words, it's like, and this just speaking personally, like when I started hearing like alternative music for lack of a better word, um, I mean, I was still listening to ACDC and, and, and the, the who or whatever, but like, I was also excited about REM and, and let's active and the other bands I was hearing. And I was also excited about corrosion of conformity and like the punk rock bands I was hearing. So it was like, I feel like you don't have the luxury of just being like, I only listen to new wave or like, I only listen to hardcore or whatever. Like when you're, when you're in a place where you don't get everything, like if you're in New York or LA or something like that, I feel like in some ways you're more open to like whatever, because you're just like, you want to hear interesting stuff and you feel slightly outside the mainstream. So you're just like anything that's, that sounds cool. You're like, I'm into that, you know, like, like I'm like one of the first shows I actually got to go to the Cat's Cradle was Rain Parade. Um, and they had played them a lot on uh, the college radio stations. We were so psyched. That was an awesome show. Um, but again, that didn't sound, any, that wasn't really punk sounding, you know, but it was just like different than anything we'd heard before, like on the radio, you know what I mean? Other than mm -hmm. college radio. Um, and, uh, and so I feel like, I feel like being in a place where kind of anything goes makes you just more open to anything. And so there can be more of this um, trajectory, like again, talking about stillborn Christians and Jeb Bishop going from that to angels of epistemology, which doesn't sound anything like that. You know what I mean? But it's all part of the same scene. And other people in that band had been in the punk scene the whole time too. It's just now they're making like this kind of music, you know, I feel like it's a, it's maybe just like a more forgiving kind of place in terms of what people are willing to accept. It's like, oh, you're doing this now. That's weird. That's cool. You know, it's like, um, no one's going to be like, oh, I wish that you were still, you know, playing um, this kind of music. Uh, it's just more, I think there's just more of an ability for people to kind of just like expand what they're doing, but still stay in the same in the same like uh ecosystem you know yeah i find it interesting when you look at a place new york because you have so much stuff happening but it does feel like everything's very much unto itself you know and everything's very much in isolation like you know like looking at the period where i guess where even you're moving up there you know you have like all this crazy sort of like noise rock stuff happening at the same time you have all the revelation straight edge stuff happening at the same time you have scum rock stuff happening and let, yet it feels like everything its own is its own little fiefdom right whereas like if you or i moved to new york in that time period we'd be going to see all that everything i want to see everything yeah. yeah it's like yeah i'm going to the cb's hardcore matinee and i'm going to see sonic youth and i'm going to see you know the cocktail twins or whatever yeah. like you know i'm just trying to see all this stuff yeah exactly like what was it like moving up there like because you went up there for for a year basically right I was up there. I went to college there starting in 85. Okay. And then was there for two years and moved back to North Carolina for a year off, like a gap year, basically, and then moved back, back up, to okay. New York for another two years. So I was there from like 85 to 90, essentially, um, with a year off in the middle, um, where I still went up there a lot during that time just to visit friends and see bands and stuff. Uh, so it was an awesome time to be in New York. And it was, I mean, I, I went to Columbia and the campus is very far uptown. Um, and they 
had some good shows on campus. I saw I, freshman year, I think I saw Volcano Sons, Who's Gurdu, The Liars, um, all kinds of good stuff on campus. But of course, the real temptation was, you know, let's go downtown or let's go out to Maxwell's every weekend uh, to see yeah. bands, uh, which gets expensive. And I mean, if you remember that, I don't know, you were too young to know that era, but uh, shows didn't end till like four in the morning or something. It was just <laughs> crazy, you know, so you're on the subway at like five, four thirty in the morning, just going like, ah. Uh, but um, and also it's but, no joke going downtown at that point too, right? Like a lot of people have come on the show talked about like John Ross Bowie talked about how he got mugged like four times just going to shows as a young kid growing up in New York. I think I think I got I think I got lucky. I mean, there's definitely neighborhoods that you were more sketched out to be in some some more than others, you know. Um, Which is where the punk venues tend to be, right? Like if you're going to right. CVs or something. <laughs> yeah, or, yeah. Um. But no, it was, you know, it was, uh, it was amazing. And the, just such a wide range of places to go, you know, like there was, there was CBs and then, you know, Rock Hotel would put on shows in different places, um, sometimes at the Ritz, which is now Webster Hall. But there's a lot of kind of the bigger shows there, like, like Motorhead and things like that, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but it was, I mean, for someone coming from North Carolina, it was very much like, oh my gosh, you know, like all these record stores, all these shows. Uh, it was, uh, it was pretty amazing place to be for sure. Well, especially someone like you, who's got a wide breadth of tastes, right? Like, it's not just like you're going to just the CB's matinees, like you want to see the Volcano Suns, you want yeah. to see the Liars, right? Like you want to see all this stuff and it must feel like, yeah, it's like a punk rock wonderland, especially that period like that's a period we're obsessed with like when i say we i mean chris o'toole who does footnotes with me and like that period of like new york because it's post everything kind of happening but it's where you have all these little scenes interact or not interacting necessarily but just happening at the same time and yeah. so many cool people so many interesting people come out of that world you know like fred armison to to brooke smith was just on the podcast yeah, yeah. Like, just so many people that are like coming drawn to this thing like moths to a flame you know and then eventually doing things cool and culture outside of that yeah and and you know like there's new york bands and then of course every touring band plays plays in new york you know yeah um i mean i think one of the first matinees i went to after we after i moved up there was um uh de Kreutzen at cb's and there was like hardly anyone there i was on a tour for the first album and they were incredibly great um but you know that's how you meet people also you just notice like oh these other five people are going down the same subway as i am for for this show and then that's kind of who you end up like hanging out with and finding out about other bands and other shows and stuff that are happening mm -hmm. what's like did you bring slush puppies up there were like you guys keep the band going in new york were you doing shows up there uh we never no we never um played up there that was because um the other people in the band were were down here in North Carolina and we would kind of play when I was home on on vacation um and uh you know just play shows here and there and I was um I was actually texting with uh, drummer Jonathan today just to try to like jog my memory about some things but um but yeah we 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 played if we played a, a few shows and and I remember you know like our maybe the the biggest shows we played were were uh 
a little bit later opening for Fugazi. We played with Fugazi a couple times. Um, like Fugazi's third show was in Carborough at the Cat's Cradle. And uh, we played that show. And I think Days Of played that show too. I think so, because uh, the Flyer's in the merge book. And that's where that amazing, yeah. the amazing minor threat on <laughs> yeah. the Flyer story is. Oh my God. <laughs> Like I don't think you should feel bad. I was like, of course you would put minor threat on the flyer. Like it's just oh. like the most Ian thing to be mad at a kid for putting the minor threat. Thing it was on only the their flyer. third show. It was like no one's gonna know, know who it is unless we tell them who it is. I know it's just like, uh, but it's it's such an amazing story. I love uh, uh, I love that story. Of that yeah, book. I made I, I made a second version of the flyer for sure. Um, <laughs> but uh, um, what was I saying? Yeah, so we were we were still just like North Carolina and like I think that Slush Puppies and then also um the other band that I was in around that time waxed WWAX uh with w Wayne from No Labels and and Brian Walsby playing drums. Um we were most active in that that year when I was took a year off from school and was living in North Carolina and we um played a bunch of shows and made some recordings and put out the box set with the five different local bands on it. Yeah. Like that's a, I love that box set, but I love the slush puppy single because there's also, and I, I wrote you about this before. Cause I found it when I was in Boston, there's a version of that seven inch from the box set with a separate sleeve. Right. Yeah. Because we had like extra, you know, when you, you know, when you, as you know, when you press records, sometimes they make extras. So we probably had like 50 extra seven inches and what are we going to do with them? So I just made some like Xerox sleeves for, for those. And then some other recordings we made got released like long after the band had broken up on uh, Leopard Gecko or is it Meat Records? I can't remember. Meat Records, I think, put it out. Meat, yeah. It's but the Leopard same Gecko. Guy, Steve. He, he, he had two two names for the label, I think. Oh, because Leopard Gecko did put out the Wax 7 inch. Right. right. Two. Yeah. And then um, changed it to Meat. Yeah, which is a great Le Leopard Gecko Records label is a really cool label. Really like, great yeah, Mel Melvin too. single on there. A fantastic with Brian Walsby art. Yeah, exactly. You yeah. know, it's amazing when you think about Wax as being this band with, you know, yourself and, and you know, the new labels connection. Then, of course, Brian Walsby, just like the Rosetta Stone of music, able to connect so many <laughs> disparate scenes and, and worlds of, of bands and stuff. So, well, and Walsby has such a good memory. Maybe it's because he writes a lot of stuff down or maybe he just has an amazing memory. But um, but I've often when I'm trying to jog my memory about something uh we'll go we'll tr i'll end up on some blog post that brian walsby's written about you know a certain <laughs> show that i was trying to f find out about or something you need those you need the archivists for the scenes to yeah. to help you remember the stuff because the reality is like it wasn't that documented like you're saying like it, it you know like if it wasn't for a radio station playing bands on carts like a lot of the stuff would remain completely unheard yeah yeah so was was that slush puppy stuff that was played on the radio on that cart? Was that the stuff that would wind up on the slush puppy's first tape? So the I was in a band in high school that we started out as a I joined a band that kind of existed already with okay. a couple couple guys from my high school who were the rhythm section and their mom was a music teacher. Their names are Mark and Greg and and they were just like insane musicians already in like 11th grade or whatever we were in. And, um, and the singer was a guy named Scott Clark, uh, who's the older brother of Ben Clark, who was in a band called A Number of Things, like a local hardcore band that was on, they put out an album on um, uh, Fart Blossom. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, but so Scott was, was my age, and he went to a different high school. But um, so they had this band, and I joined this band, and it was 
they were originally called the Pneumatics, I think, and then we were called Pneumatic Underground. And we mainly played covers and we kind of got together, if I remember correctly, the, the first thing we played was the, the talent show at Chapel Hill High, which was kind of like a big deal. And then that same year, Dexter Romweber played the, the talent show and was like amazing. Um, but the talent show at Chapel Hill High was like a big deal. And we got, and we got together and we, we learned mainly a bunch of like covers. I feel like half of them were from Erga Music War. Like we saw Erga Music War and we're just like, yeah, we should just learn like five songs from this and that'll be most of our set. Uh, like, like we covered Athletico Spiz 80 and Echo and the Bunnymen and the Pretenders and the Police and like all this stuff. So, um, so that was that band, but we did have uh, after a while, a few original songs and we recorded them at a place called Lloyd Street Studios in Carborough, which had a four track reel to reel and those those songs got put on a cart um, at the radio station. And so um, we didn't play a lot of club shows. For one thing, we were really young um, and we weren't together that long, but we did get to open for Tommy Keen, which was, Whoa! And, and we got to play with um, the Connells. That was, those were kind of like our biggest like uh, shows at clubs. So we got to play the Cat's Cradle and the brewery, which was, which was awesome in addition to like playing a bunch of parties and stuff. So that would have been Tommy Keen just kind of freshly solo, right? I guess so. And, you know, he he was, I mean, maybe he wasn't here more than anywhere else, but it felt like it because he was Dolphin on Dolphin Records, Records which, yeah. is based in, which is based in Durham. So he wasn't local particularly, but his label was. Um, yeah, and he was awesome. I mean, the places that are gone, like those first couple EPs got played a lot on the radio around here. And, um, and so... Yeah, so there was this kind of like, um, I mean, it's interesting now thinking about that starting a record label in Durham in 1982 or three or whenever that was. Um, but, but you know, they put out a couple of compilations called Mondo Montage and then More Mondo. These are like comps, mostly kind of like new wave kind of things from around here. Um, but again, like they got played a lot on the radio. And so those, those were pretty influential, I think, for like the local, the local scene. Um, and uh, anyway, uh, so the, so we so our band did get played on uh, on on the radio, and then um, when we uh, finished high school, we we kind of like everybody did their own thing, and we didn't um, play together after that. But I was, you know, uh, that was really my first like band that ever played like in a club or whatever. I always thought that band was called the Slush Puppies too. For some reason, I didn't no. Remember. Slush Puppies was like I was I was like friends with Jonathan, who was the drummer for the Slush Puppies. This whole time, he's like we were best friends basically, and we played music at his house all the time because he lived on this farm, and so he could make noise at any hours of the day. <laughs> yeah, and um, uh, but we never had like a full on like band band until I went away to school and then came back, and then we started Slush Puppies basically. Uh, I think Ugh, it's a music war is super underrated in the impact it had like those bands. And yeah. like just, it's, it's something that I guess maybe cause it's never been, I guess, formally reissued. I don't think, you know, I don't think it, ha I mean, they probably can't get the rights to like half of those things at this point, but yeah. some of the footage, I mean, I remember, I mean, some of those clips are just insanely great. Klaus, Klaus Nomi, the Klaus Nomi clip alone. Mm -hmm. um, the cramp yeah. stuff. The cramp stuff is insane. The gang of four clip is insane. Yes. Um, so there's like a lot of good, a lot of good music on that thing. But again, like if you're, you know, 
15 and you go see that in the for the midnight show or whatever and you're just like holy shit you know like this is like a whole world of stuff out there Mm -hmm. and it's it really is like i don't know for me it's like almost like that first sort of a punk explosion like this is it coming to fruition like these are all the bands that kind of like came out of it and this is all the different sort of sonic spaces it's taking up right now like i just I, I think that is such a, and it's so funny, like reading the Miles Copeland book mm-hmm. and hearing how that movie came together. And it, I don't think he ever put as much weight on it as I think people have put on it since it came out type thing. Like right. not that he didn't take pride, I think in making it, but it just feels like, I don't think he, he, he appreciated necessarily at the time, how much impact that thing would have in the long term. Well, I also feel like England is such a weird place in terms of how they think about their bands that like, I think by the time that came out, a lot of those bands were probably just like completely disregarded by yeah. the English music press or fans or whatever. I've moved on to something else, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I mean, so the thing is though, if you're, if you're living in a place like this and you see these bands, you're never going to get to see most of these bands live, you know, unless they become as big as the police and play like an arena near you, which they, they did. But I mean, most of those bands never did. So what's the thing that you can go see? You can go see like other punk bands that are like your local punk bands, you know, mm-hmm. at like all ages shows, because even if a band like, um, I don't know, like if Gang of Four did tour around that time, like they were definitely playing, uh, they probably weren't coming here first of all, but they would be playing in a bar most likely, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, so, so again, like hardcore shows is where we were going to see uh, bands. And a lot of that had to do with Corrosion of Conformity being here, um, you know, because they were quick to go out on tour, I think. Soon after they started, they started playing out of town a lot and then met a lot of um, people on the road. And then those bands would come through here and play. And a lot of times CSU would be on the bill too, but not always, but it's just like, that's what kind of put Raleigh on the map. I feel like, I mean, Charlotte, a lot of bands played Charlotte also, but that was like a little far to drive for us. It was about three hours at that time. And um, there's a funny detail that they, when you read stuff about CSC, they talk about is that Reed's dad, um, had a bit and my my dad and Reed's dad went to college together, which we didn't put together until I again until I'd known Reed for like years or whatever. Yeah. He was like, my dad was like, what's his last name? Mullen? Oh, I went to school with a guy named Sandy Mullen. Anyway, <laughs> that's a whole other thing. But Reed's dad had a had a Watts line in their in their business, which is basically like a reverse 800 number. Like you can call anywhere long distance for free. Okay. And so so they use that to be able to like book tours and stuff. So they had this like resource where they could just like call people all over the country, bands, clubs, whatever. And like that kind of like helped them build their network of bands that they knew, which is really funny, which is really funny. I didn't know about it at the time, but they talk about that in interviews and stuff. Well, it's funny, like the the economics of early punk is something that I'm also becoming really interested in. And the idea that like you had to find a way to make it work because it was so expensive to do this thing. Like how much you would know better than I would, but how much did it used to cost to book a fucking tour just in long distance bills? Like before you even got on the road to pay for the gas and all the other stuff, like, Oh, I know just like hundreds of dollars. I mean, I don't even know. Like when I think about the first time that we, the first time that super chunk went on tour, 
I'm just like, how did those shows even happen? Like, how did they even know that we were definitely going to come to that show? <laughs> like, yeah. it's just like, so it's so weird, you know, like it was like pre-fax machine even, you know? Yeah. Oh, especially in Canada. Cause that border, you know, when the band got up to the border, you, you know, anything could happen. So right. you'd be sitting at the venue and there'd be no way to contact him, no way to call him. Like, you know, one band got held up at the border for four days, I think it yeah. was, you know, and like, you're just sitting at the venue, like, well, they know showed us that sucks. And then yeah. little did you know that they're meanwhile getting their life ripped apart at the Canadian border. Oh my God. I mean, to me, that was one of the the coolest things about um, going to hardcore shows where there were bands from out of town was that it seemed so exotic. It's mm. like this band drove here from California. Like that's <laughs> insane. Like I remember seeing SNFU I was, and I knew where they were from. And I was just like, oh my God, like they're here in Raleigh, you, you know? Um, and I mean, they were, you know, they were one of the greatest hardcore bands that I ever saw for sure. Just like live bands, insanely, insanely amazing. I saw them a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, just to, yeah, to think about like what it took to like book that tour and get to the East coast from Vancouver or wherever, like just like the whole thing is just was just is just kind of wild when you think about it now they're almost a band that i think is more revered in america than they are in canada Hmm. like because because they toured and because they got out there and it was easier i think we realized it early on too like it's easier to tour america than it is canada so them in doa it seems like there's more reverence for them i find in america than canada i mean doa also was just so full-on live like that's what i wanted to see Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. like that's a band it's like you're going to see you know especially because they were pretty big by the time I was seeing them. That was in New York. So it was probably an expensive show or whatever. And you want to be blown away and like, they would blow you away. I, I think one of the coolest things ever was watching you and Jim cover. Fuck you at that uh, oh. driveway <laughs> to driveway. Yeah. Acoustic. On acoustic, but cause it's just like, I don't like, you know, this is pre way pre me doing this podcast, but for me, it just kind of drove this point home. Like, Oh, punk does connect everything. Like here's super chunk playing this song that like that song also this guy simon harvey this is his theory so i don't mean to take credit for it but (laughs) but that song traces the history of vancouver punk to hardcore Mm. through it being covered first it's a skull song Uh um and then it's covered by uh subhumans do it yeah yeah. Yeah, and then doa does it and like how you can kind of like trace the evolution of this song and then here you guys are covering it at a movie theater on acoustic guitars in Toronto. right right (laughs) on on one of the coolest nights of my life too that was a fun ass night that was really fun that is a night that will live on in infamy in my mind you know but (laughs) um but uh but yeah so you know, like once I once I moved to New York and then came back and for a year and we put those records out, then it was kind of like, oh, like you can just put records out, mm-hmm. you know, like that, that, that was like such a cool thing to do and such a fun local thing. And I think that it also made me realize that like, because, you know, usually like, again, if we're trying to go see bands at, at clubs, like it was often touring, touring bands, you know, um, because that's who people will get excited to see. But um, if you, like when we put that box set out, we did a couple and it was, so the box set was us, or sorry, Slush Puppies, Wax, Angels of Epistemology, Black Girls, and Egg. And none of those bands on their own could draw enough to like fill us, 
what was at the time a very small cat's cradle. It probably held like 250 people or something like that. But when we put that box set out, we had record release shows and like sold out the cat's cradle and sold out the brewery. And it was like, people were coming to see these like weird local bands. And so that was a very um, kind of heartening thing, which I felt like, you know, before that to, to be a local band that was like filling clubs, you would have to be like, I don't know, maybe kind of fratty or just like super poppy or something enough to be on the radio, you know? Um, and none of these bands were like that and people still came out. So that was a pretty cool, that was kind of like a, a cool learning experience really. When you're building a scene, right? Like it's a, it's something that is completely different. Like I, I find there's like the closest thing would be DC, just like in the way that DC kind of has this sort of, uh, you know, like this scene that's kind of like built and kind of like, it feels like it was uh, tended to and kind of like help and nourish to kind of grow that way. Well, and I felt very inspired by the DC scene. I mean, it's funny because if you read, if you read about no labels and COC, like they, they had songs that were like kind of, slightly like anti-DC songs because like they are, you know, they, they would say, you know, when they went to DC, they were kind of looked down upon as like these Southern, like, like rednecks or whatever, when they would go to a show there and the people in DC were all kind of like well-dressed and wearing creepers and um, I don't know, just like slightly snobby or something like that. And that's and, that, and that's not unique to them. I've heard that from other people. Nancy from uh, Bo, you know, Philadelphia and Boston. Nancy Burrell talked about it on her episode too. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and whatever, like they had built this thing that was like super great. You know, like mm -hmm. they had they had the Discord. They had these amazing bands, and so they did have this thing. It was enviable. But um, when when I went to college, I I uh, I met. A woman named Lydia Ely, who's from DC and in the scene and and really good friends with with a lot of these people in these bands. And so when they came to New York, they would stay with her often in the dorm. And so I got to meet, that's how I met Brendan and Guy and Ian and people from from those bands. Um and uh seeing like what Rights of Spring was doing and Embrace and those um bands and was was super in, inspiring because it was like they were kind of like remaking a scene like they had a scene and then like all those bands broke up and then they're like doing it again you know what i mean and they had an interesting way of kind of like um not really self-mythologizing but kind of like making a big deal about what they were doing like mm -hmm. when there would be a show with um remember going to see happy go licky or something at 930 club and they had like giant painted thing and like flowers and like all this stuff and like um it was just kind of more of a more of an occasion or something which i think like really made everyone involved more um feel more uh stake in it or something you know like more like they're part of something and uh I, so i i found that part of the dc scene really really inspiring and cool you know it, it's it's there's such a flair for drama in the i guess DC that's scene. what i'm describing yeah, yeah. exactly yeah but it, but it's funny because like it's such it's always taken up and when i think of it it's always like such an austere like you know meat and potatoes kind of scene at every point like you know obviously they're doing art but they're doing it in like you know like a very kind of like this is protestant work ethic kind of way yeah but, the, but there is such like a melodramatic kind of flair to everything like bands smashing their gear like this is our last yeah. show ever we're gonna yeah. burn all the copies of this demo so no one could ever hear it like it's very 
Oh, very, very traumatic in, a, in an amazing way. I mean, I think I had that same idea about the austerity until I met people in those bands. Yeah. And I was like, oh, my God, these are like the biggest goofballs, you know, and like, whatever. They named their band Happy Go Licky. Like how, you know, how much how much goofier could, could you get? Mm-hmm. So we we actually I mean, we were lucky. We got to play with them. Um, Slush Puppies and Days Of went to play the D.C. space with Happy Go Licky. That was um, amazing. Um, but you know, I think that the, the other, the other thing that I think kind of is like a, in between, like a connector in some ways to other, to, from us to DC and, and just other kinds of music was, um, uh, the Richmond scene, which is like, in, you know, it's like much closer to here. And so bands from Richmond would come down here, here and play. And we would, we could much more easily drive to Richmond to see a band, especially if we had to drive back after the show, mm. uh, cause it was only two and a half hours away. Um, and you know, honor roll was kind of like, to me, like the, maybe the greatest band of that era, uh, in terms of a band that, like I saw like a million times who were like always great, always interesting. The records didn't do them justice, even though I love those records, but, um, but, but just super inspiring as a band that was in the punk scene for sure and the first record is kind of first seven it's just kind of hardcore sounding but like they immediately just like started doing all kinds of weird stuff and super cool songs and the first time i saw them was they were opening for the minutemen at uh saint joseph's church that church basement that we were talking about earlier and i'd never seen either band before i'd heard the minutemen because i had double nickels but like seeing both bands in one night was just like, my mind was so blown, like by each band. I was like, wow, I just saw like my two favorite bands now, it, it you know, for the first time ever and in the same night and they're from wildly different scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that Honor Roll was just like a, a huge influence here. I mean, f- for sure on my bands, but I think on a lot of people's bands, you know, and then we were lucky to get to eventually reissue that stuff on merge and work with pens other some of pens other bands and bob schicks and the coral that we put out the coral uh first coral single as well yeah i love the i love those records and i think they're like uh but they're one of those bands like you're saying that anyone you talk to from that area is like oh but you had to see them live like it was like a a different experience than even the records yeah and and you know moving to new york and getting to see honor roll and corrosion of conformity in New York was also very validating because you're going to CBs and like, there's all these people there to see these bands that like, you know about, but you don't really know what the wider world thinks of them. And then there's like all these people there, including Gerard and Thurston and people that you respect. And you're like, Oh, like other people get this also. It's so cool. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Like it feels, uh, it feels like uh, it's funny when uh, Kevin seconds was on, we talked about this idea of like, you need almost like ambassadors of a scene mm-hmm. to kind of like go out there. And like you were saying about COC to kind of like get the name out of the scene. And there's certain cities that didn't have that type of band. Right. And it's, it's almost like the scene's a little more forgotten because of it. Like you needed almost like a flag waiver from each city to kind of be like, this is where people should go. This is where the other band should, should take up and tour. And because it's not documented so well, this is how the legend spreads. Yeah. 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 It's true. Um, did you, how much connection was there to the Atlanta scene? Um, I mean, you know, neon Christ was really like what I was familiar with from Atlanta and I saw them. Um, 
Did you ever see a band called The Restraints? No, I never saw that band. Okay, they seem to be the uh, Gigi Allen of the South. As oh, I'm really? Learning no, about I them. I, I don't think I ever saw them. I saw Neon Christ and they were awesome. Um, and uh, have that single, but I don't. But I don't think I ever saw The Restraints. I, Atlanta's like, I mean, it's literally six six and a half hours away. Like it's really far, you yeah. know. And and, and especially. Um, driving back then like i don't know like it, it felt like another thing and uh just like super far away but charlotte's a lot closer but i've always heard that that was like a completely different world charlotte is a lot closer but also yeah just feels like a a, a totally different place like they had a couple of clubs that got like a ton of shows and there are some um good bands from there but um like i think no rock stars was from charlotte they were on that that no core tape which is like kind of the first north carolina hardcore compilation um had no labels no no rock stars cold core and oh maybe still weren't oh corrosion corrosion yeah so, so so uh but um i think no rock stars were from there and they were really they're really great but i never got to see them live or anything mm -hmm. um but but yeah charlotte it's like a it's a banking city you know and so like the vibe is different anti-scene was the, from there obviously and so like they they had a rep, reputation but they were kind of that was like kind of a separate kind of it's a like separate a separate world thing. yeah but then like but because I, I as i understand it's like raleigh uh durham and it's it's like wench and chapel hill it's like one kind of scene yeah because everything is very close to each other you know um mm -hmm. The, Raleigh's the furthest from Chapel Hill. That's the furthest distance, and that's like twenty-five miles or something like that. So all that, yeah, it feels very connected. And then once you start to get to Greensboro and Winston, like that's a little far. They have their own kind of scene, and then Charlotte's like even further. So outside of the DC space, how much touring did you do with Slush Puppies and we, even Wax and stuff? We we didn't we never did any touring like Wax. The furthest Wax went was. We went and played a show in Greenville, South Carolina. There was a club that in 1987 or whatever year this was still had something called New Wave Night. <laughs> and and like we, we went and played a show there with the um uh what are they called from from Richmond? I think the other other not the other mothers, that's Greensboro. Other I'm trying neighbors? to think. Something neighbors. Oh my gosh. John Moran was in this band. He produced a lot of great records. Anyway, I can I'll fix it in that. the intro. I'll fix I'll put that in the intro. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, yeah, we went to play to like five people in Greenville, South Carolina. That was like the, the most touring we did. We mainly, we mainly played around here and slush puppies. Um, I think the furthest we went was we played DC and then we got to play this amazing college show with, Fugazi at Dickinson College, which I think is in Pennsylvania. And uh and that was like the extent of our kind of like touring. We just mainly like played around here. How much did you see the world kind of change for this music in, in that sort of like 90 to 91 period? Because like obviously, you know, people come on the show and talk about, you know, post Nirvana and just like how everything changes. Like and it seems like you guys are just forming just at the beginning of this thing kind of happening. Yeah, so like Chunk and Merge started in 89 and we would drive to New York and play a show 
um, remember we went, drove up and played like CB's Canteen or something like that on New Year's Eve, 1989. Um, and uh, put out a couple singles and our first tour was that next summer with Seaweed and Geek and, and we went as far as like Minneapolis. Um, but again, all these bands had was like one or two singles out. And it was kind of amazing. Like we still had some great shows, which was a little bit like, wow, like there's all these people here in Chicago to see us or Minneapolis, you know, like people are coming to see us, but there's also shows where no one was coming to see us. Um, because again, bands with like one seven inch out, like how do people even hear about that? You know? Mm -hmm. Um, and so it was still pretty like haphazard, I feel like. And like we we're talking about before, you're booking these shows on the phone and, you know, sending physical press materials in the mail. Uh, so I just think it was still very like, you never knew what you're going to get when you arrived in Louisville or wherever, you know. Um, but I, I, in some ways it's hard for me to judge because by the time we really started touring, we also had an actual booking agent and we had signed to Matador Records. And so other things were happening that were making us probably seem more real to the outside world. Mm -hmm. um, but I still feel like it was like touring was for a lot of bands who don't have an album out or just have one record out or whatever it's it's very hit and miss you know some amazing shows with tons of people and you don't even know how all those people like know about your band you know um and then other shows where there's no, no one there but you can still have a fun show you know it's just like the running the gamut of of like what an early tour uh is, is like it, i guess it also depends on what's happening in a town on any given night like if there's nothing going on you could like win the lottery and everyone could be For at your sure. show because people were bored back then and nothing For else sure. to do i mean i think that one thing that that really helped us was this series of connections we made with other bands either bands that had played here or 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 you know when we did that tour with seaweed and geek so now we knew people on the West Coast, you know, with Seaweed, and we knew people in D.C., which was Jenny Toomey and, and uh, Derek and Kristen and, and Geek and at Simple Machines people, basically. And so, and through Seaweed, we had, a, you know, I think Aaron was living in Olympia at the time. So, like, you have these little footholds or whatever when, you know, when you get to this town, okay, there's going to be someone there, you know, or Aaron from seaweed i remember saying like oh you should stay with my friends in um albuquerque or wherever like people would you know tell you tell their friends to come see you or tell you to like call their friends when you're in their town um and there was a network of that sorts that all existed via the phone i guess um mm -hmm. uh but you know because it was pre-email but it but it existed in this way that that kind of gave you a little bit of a well at least when we get to this town we know someone and that'll be a cool place to kind of like hang out for a couple of days or whatever. Um, and I remember for our first show and I think it was our first show in San Diego, we played with uh, Pitchfork, I think. And so, you know, that, then we got to know um, Rick and John from Jehu and Rocket. And uh, you just, you're just like making these 
friends because you're all into the same kind of thing and uh, paying attention to the same zines or radio stations or whatever. Yeah, John talked about that when he was on the show about playing with you guys and meeting you guys for the first time and, and just how, yeah, like it's it's so, I think that's the the great gift that punk kind of gives uh, music in a way is just the idea of like touring touring on the cheap like you know like you didn't have to wait for a booking agent you'd have to wait for a club to kind of book your show like you just do it on a network of friends it's like that doa black flag mm-hmm. phone phone number thing that you just pass yeah. on a phone number and then max rock and roll book your own fucking life like it feels like for sure it, that that's the thing that's the greatest gift because that can be applied to any type of music yeah 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 um and so i think that you know having for better or worse, having a positive experience, at least part of the time makes you like, keep doing it, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, and, and you're kind of hooked on that. Um, you start getting in that cycle of like touring and seeing the same people in different places. And it's really, and it's really fun. Um, and then, uh, you know, it can become a thing that you're just like, oh, this is just what we do now every year. <laughs> and we're trying to make records at the same time, you know? And that that can be a burnout at the same time, but um, especially when you're first starting, you're much more willing to like uh, sleep anywhere and be uncomfortable and you know play anywhere, and you know that's a pretty exciting time. Yeah, you know the stuff you're willing to put up with to make it happen. Um, now this has finally happened. I don't want it to stop, Mac, but I've kept you for a very long time, and I could talk to you forever. But will you come back for a part two at some point in the future? Of course, and part two will. We'll get into the 90s. Well, before I let you go, though, I got to find out a little bit more about your involvement because you are a bat. You are a member of the bats. <laughs> I did play on a bats record. Yes. I didn't even realize I own that seven inch. And it wasn't until researching this episode did I, I like I listen to that record all the time. And I'm like, holy shit, Mac plays on this, too. Yeah. That's crazy. How did you first become aware of that scene, the Flying Nun stuff? Because you so, do a Verlaine's cover super early on on the 10 inch too. Yeah. So uh, when I was um, at school, I was in New York. I was at school with uh, a guy named George Balukas, who um, he and Patrick Amory had a fanzine called Too Fun, Too Huge. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and through them, I kind of learned about and, and also, you know, Force Exposure would review a lot of these Fly Nun records also. And I was like reading Force Exposure cover to cover. Um, and uh, in fact, that's the only magazine I ever got in trouble for having in my in my bedroom at home was Force Exposure. <laughs> what issue? It was an issue where there was some like one act plays by like Nick Cave and Lydia Lunch oh, or something. My God. And, and my parents were just like, can you not leave this around for your little brother to find? anyway so like but so they reviewed a lot of these fine nun releases and and um and and george and i and jonathan marks who went on to be in lamb chop uh, like we would go record shopping together and we're often looking for flying nun stuff and so that's kind of how i found out about flying nun in the first place and then uh on my when i was taking a year off from school i was working um uh at the record store. And so I would try to get flying nun stuff in when we could, you know, through Dutch East or whoever was importing it at the time. And, um, I was like obsessed with that made up and, um, made up in blue 12 inch. 
And then the bats came over for, I think their first tour and they were playing uh, Maxwell's and we were living um, in North Carolina at the time, but I was like, I have to, we have to drive up to New York to see the bats. So Laura and I drove up, we did a road trip um, to New York and we eventually went to Boston and some other places, but the whole thing seems like it was kind of based around going to see the bats at Maxwell's. And in anticipation of that, I made some t-shirts. I like hands, I like home silk screen some t-shirts with the made up in blue art on it and brought some to the band. And I had like, in drying the ink, I kind of like burned some of the shirts in the oven. So they like weren't even that great looking. But anyway, <laughs> I made, I, 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 I homemade Bats merch and gave it to the band themselves. I don't know what I thought they were going to like do, do with this. <laughs> wear their own shirts on stage i don't know that's like, that, i guess but that's super um, flattering like to see that someone put that effort into your band like you know yeah, uh, jason well jason was just on you know uh new darcy and he was saying that uh he used to just cut out bob mold press clippings when bob would come to chicago and bring bob all these press clippings press so, clippings that's so good oh you know God. but that like endears you to yeah. the band like that's a, you got to kind of be a punisher yeah. to get in there right like we all know yeah. that's the reality of this thing right right so so we so we did that and so we kind of met them then and became friends a little bit or whatever and then they ended up signing to mammoth records which was based here in carborough and when they're on mammoth they came um through town and uh, we're here for a while, like hang, hanging out. Uh, and I was like, uh, and I guess they were recording that EP, Spill the Beans, at Duck Key Studios when it was still in Raleigh, where we had made the Slush Puppies records and the Wax records and all this stuff. It's in Jerry, it was in Jerry Key's house um, on Bickett you know, Boulevard, Bickett Street in Raleigh, anyway. Um, and I was like, wow, it's so cool. The bats are like making this record in Ducky Studios. And uh, through hanging out, they asked if I would come um, play guitar on this one song. And so I think that like I play guitar and I think that maybe Paul Keen was like operating the, the Wawa pedal like while I'm playing a solo or something <laughs> like that. I was just psyched to be like hanging out with them. And then I, I got... Um, I got Kay to sing on a, the, a portostatic record around that same time at, that I was making at Ducky, mm -hmm. um, which again was just like dream come true. So, um, and so we've just been friend, friends with them since then. And, um, you know, we ended up putting out a Bats uh, EP on Merge and um, playing shows together. And yeah, it's always awesome to see them. Yeah, they're like, they're just one of those bands that like the first time you hear them, you're like, how how is this? how have I not heard of this? Like, how is this not yeah. like the most well-known shit? And there's, and they're still making amazing records. The most re yeah. recent album is just great. It's wild. Like they got like, well, super chunk, you know, like there are a few bands that are like are good, you know, for, for a long period of time where you can actually grow old. Like we're talking about like scenes growing old, but like bands that you can actually mature with and like still like, you know, don't, don't let you down. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. I mean, I, and, and bands like that are, are in, inspiration you know i mean they're you know i think of the mekons in the same in the same way mm -hmm. you know we played with them we opened for them one of our first shows in chicago maybe like the second or third time we were there we opened for them at uh, at the metro and i'd seen them already in new york when i was living there and they're just they're already legends obviously you know and um 
and they're just one of those bands that no matter when I see them, they're great. And I'll listen to anything that they put out and, uh, and they're super inspirational in that way, you know? And I think they're a band that like, because they are so storied, like people, I don't think always see that whole story because like Mm -hmm. they're with gang of four when that stuff's starting, you know, they're still relevant the whole way through. Like it's, it's, it's amazing when bands are able to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been amazing to be able to do this with you, Mac. And great to see you, Damien. Anytime, buddy. Anytime. I'm going to start bugging you for part two tomorrow. We'll do it. We'll do it. We got we had to get back on to get a screenshot and Mac and I were talking and, and we got one more story. Right. Well, so you were talking about like stuff that I heard on college radio that then I got interested in. And one of the bands was um the Meat Puppets. When Meat Puppets 2 came out, they were playing it on XYC and they were playing it especially because they were coming through town. They're gonna play at the cat's cradle. Um, and I think that one of the things that's interesting and unique to this place is the continuity especially in chapel hill and carborough because the club scene in raleigh has kind of changed over the years like the brewery's not around anymore the fallout shelter's not around anymore a lot of the places don't exist that people used to play but the catch cradle though it's moved locations is still here this was at it's not its oldest location but this is like its second oldest location in a very small spot on franklin street and the meat puppets were playing and so even though I knew that like I was not old enough to get in, like we would still sometimes just try to like go and see what would happen. So went to the cat's cradle, like they, you know, I couldn't get in. So I'm hanging around outside and then they pull up and I guess they didn't sound check. I guess they were just like arriving at the club, like in time to play or whatever, Mm -hmm. who knows where they had driven from. And I went up and like said hi or whatever. And they're like, are you coming to the show? And I was like, Oh, I'm not old enough to come in. They're like, here, I don't remember which brother it was, which Kirkwood. He's like, here, like, just carry these and just like act like you're our roadie. And so like, I'm like, however old, 16 or something like that. I'm like walking behind them. Like they're just these really tall guys, you know? And I'm like, just walking behind them, carrying these guitars into a place I've tried to get in like a hundred times or whatever. And so like, I just feel this giant hand on my shoulder as I'm walking past and it's Billy, the door guy, who's this huge bouncery looking guy he's like the friendliest guy in the world but he's very intimidating looking because he's really he's a football player yeah just like feel his hand on my shoulder he's like where do you think you're going you know what i mean <laughs> like i was like well i i tried but i just thought it was, and then usually what happened is like frank or billy or someone would be like okay like you can watch like a song or something you know and then like and you can have to stand right here by the door and then like you've got to go because we can't get busted with you being in here underage um but I thought it was so cool that like the meat puppets were like, sure, we'll try to get you into our show. Like we don't, you know what I mean? Like it was just an awesome moment of, of like kindness, you know, like mm-hmm. they didn't know me from anyone, you know, they're just like dudes far from home on tour. Um, but the fact that like, that was the same club where like, we still play now, you know, in Carborough, I just think is like, like I said, I think the continuity is important and really helps kind of like build a scene, you know? Yeah, it's that continuity too. Like that that idea that like that that's the thing. Like punk bands show up and they're playing a, a, a twenty one over nineteen plus show, and there's a young kid there. They're gonna try and find a way to sneak that kid in, not to like get that kid drunk, but just because everyone knows that's the power of this music. Is you want to these kids want to see it, and you got to help them see it. 
Yeah. And they were probably that kid at some point too. So yeah. like they understand, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I also meant to ask you, did you have any interaction? Cause you used to identify as straight edge with the whole straight edge thing that was kicking off in New York at that mm-hmm. time too. Oh no, I was never straight edge. Okay. In the book, in the merge book, they describe you as a straight edge dreadlock punk kid at one point. Someone God. describes you as that. So. <laughs> was definitely not straight edge. Um, I mean, I wasn't going crazy or anything, but I was drinking beer or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, you know, we used to, I, I would occasionally see like a, like I, I was kind of, those were the bands like late eighties, like early nineties, New York hardcore bands. Like I wasn't that into that scene. Mm-hmm. But I would go, but like one of my favorite record stores to go to at the time was Some Records. I don't know if you've ever um, talked to, I don't know if he's still around, the guy who ran that store, Dwayne, I think his name was. Um, Legendary store. Yeah. And walking distance to, um, there wasn't a ton of record stores in that neighborhood in particular at that time in the East Village. And so like um, uh, we when we were going to a show or going downtown in general, we would try to go by uh go by some records and i think that his thing was like american punk only or something he had some weird restriction on his like what he carried in his store or maybe it's like he only carried hardcore i don't know like i think I it's only buying, hardcore maybe maybe it's like he only carried hardcore yeah and like i remember buying some misfits records there and things like that like but uh but he was just a really interesting guy um to talk to and you be in there and Thurston or someone would wander in, you know, like it was, it was a cool little, like it felt like it was part of a scene. It wasn't mm-hmm. really my scene, but it definitely felt like it was part of a scene. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, anytime you want to be part of this scene again, Mac, we're, All right. we're always looking for uh scenesters. I, I will be back in the scene for sure. Thank you, Mac, for coming on the show. When you're right there, Mac will be back. At some point in the near future. And check out The Sound of Yourself, Mac's brand new solo record, an amazing album, out on September the 24th on the home label, Merge Records. Coming up later on this week on the show, returning to the show, my buddy Derek from UXB Press is back. Derek, of course, was part of uh, the amazing team that put out Tomorrow Is Too Late, the Toronto hardcore punk in the 80s book. Uh, if you did not pick this thing up, and unfortunately both printings are, are sold out now, hopefully there'll be more coming because this is an authoritative book on Toronto hardcore and the crew has returned with Eve of Darkness, the Toronto metal in the 80s book. And let me tell you, I, I don't know, I think this might top the hardcore book. And I love the hardcore book. And obviously the hardcore book sonically is closer to my heart, but this thing is incredible. Like this is the authoritative book on Toronto metal and Toronto metal that covers a pretty wide swath of music. And we talk all about it on this next episode. I'm very excited for you to hear about this thing. I learn a lot. This is an area of music that I do not, um, excel in my knowledge of but it's something i'm very fascinated with so yeah i'm 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 stoked for you to hear this that will be coming up in a few days on the show and that is it remember as always black lives matter the lives of indigenous peoples matter we need to protect trans kids we need to help trans people protect themselves and there needs to be a, a a halting a stopping a ceasing of hate and violence towards asian people and people of different faiths and and different nationalities and just 
just knock all this shit out. Because as I say, this isn't political. There's, there's elections happening all the time. There's a lot of political stuff and this stuff does get tied into political stuff at times, but this is just basic human rights stuff. Like people just deserve the right to live freely and as who they are. So get involved. Uh, if you see something going on in this world that you don't agree with, you know, research what's going on. Find out if there's organizations that are addressing it. See if you can lend your support. However that is, you know, in, in person, financially, if you, if you can't do it in person or if you have the ability to do it financially, whatever, just go there and, and do something. Uh, speaking of doing something, try something, doing something creative. You know, make a, make a fanzine, make a band, make a podcast, make a, make a record. You know, just lots of stuff you can do, you know, because anyone can do this stuff and making something makes you feel good. You know, it doesn't have to be something that ambitious. Maybe just make a drawing. Maybe you don't show anyone. Just do it, just do it for yourself. Since we're on this self-help kick right now, why not try meditating? I didn't believe in it, but it really does kind of work. Uh, and I, I, I should really research it more and look into it more because it is really beneficial. And I strongly recommend trying it, even if you're someone like me who thought it was hippie bullshit, even though it's, you know, a practice that goes back centuries and centuries and centuries and <laughs> has all this history. But if you still are someone who like me and was just like, yeah, whatever, it's hippie stuff, try it. You know, who knows? Uh, sign your organ donor cards because they don't, they don't come for that shit until you don't need them anymore. Don't worry. They're not going to show up in your house like that Monty Python sketch that was ripped off by You Can't Do That on Television. Like wholesale ripped off by You Can't Do That on Television. I remember seeing this sketch as a kid. My dad's like, this is completely ripped off, this Monty Python sketch. And then seeing this Monty Python sketch. Anyway, sign your organ donor cards because they're not going to do what those sketches say they're going to do. And I think that's it. <sighs> Stay safe. Maybe I'll see you in Chicago. Maybe, maybe not. I'm sorry. I'm not going to see you guys, some of you people, um, in some of these other places. Maybe next time. All right. Thanks for listening.